Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and it's been a whirlwind of a few days or weeks in Pakistan. Lots of political drama, action in terms of what happened with the government of Imran Khan, a midnight vote to oust him and then, you know, a new government that has just come into power, which to this day, um, it's been four days that we're recording this um, and there hasn't been a cabinet announced. Um, and there's a lot of like analysis going around about what this means for Pakistan's political economy, its flawed and floundering democracy, um, the role of the judiciary um, and everything else in between. And so I have a lot of questions and, uh, you know, I, I figured that uh, we invite Dr. Ilhan Niaz, who's chair of the history department at the Qaeda Azam University um, to the podcast again. I think he's one of the first um, to be a three time guest on this podcast. Um, and I was joking with him before the recording started that he's perhaps our senior historical analyst um, that I refer back to to contextualize things um, in Pakistan's political economy. And I think it's important to have that historical perspective in today's moment because uh, often a lot of people joke about my Safian friends, for example, that history for them begins in 2018. Um, but that's just not true about Insafians. I think Pakistanis generally um, don't really think about their history and the long trajectory of their own political economy when observing and analyzing political development. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. And Dr. Niaz, again, thank you uh, for taking out the time and joining us once again on Pakistanomy. My, uh, my pleasure. Great to be back. I want to begin with sort of your perspective on what has unfolded over the last couple of weeks and, and sort of you know, would love for you to contextualize this in sort of the long arc of Pakistan's own democracy, if we can call it that, um, and the sort of ups and downs that we've seen in terms of asserting civilian supremacy. Obviously, yesterday, for example, the ISPR did a big presser, which was interesting in and of itself in terms of the questions they fielded, um, but clearly saying we're apolitical, and they made a very conscious choice to say apolitical over the last two years. Um, and then sort of gave examples of local elections, et cetera. But how did you see or how have you seen um, the events of the last month or so in terms of, you know, what has transpired in Pakistan's politics for a number of decades? Well, I think at uh, one level, there is an element of continuity. So in Pakistan, uh, since the early to mid-1950s, what we've seen is that governments come to power and they are removed from power when they lose the support of either the military and the bureaucracy or some combination of these institutions. And at the same time, we also see that uh, the military is perceived rightly or wrongly to be the ultimate arbiter of this succession process. So that is something which has played out in a very, very familiar way when it comes to the downfall of the first PTI government, that uh, there was a civil military rift after a period of all being on the same page. And then uh, that uh, rift led to a sudden change in the opposition's fortunes. Uh, that the same opposition that couldn't even muster its uh, majority in the Senate to block legislation, uh, all of a sudden was, you know, operating in lockstep and marshalling every single MNA under their control. And uh, a certain number of uh, PTI MNAs uh, conveniently developed consciences, as they would have put it, uh, and decided to ditch the government. Uh, creating a parliamentary crisis for uh, that government. So at that level, uh, there is a very strong element of continuity. At another level, there is also an important shift because uh, while whatever may have been happening behind the scenes, as far as the formal statutory process is concerned, uh, Imran Khan has been removed as prime minister and his government has fallen by virtue of it losing the support of the majority of the representatives in the National Assembly. And when the Imran Khan government attempted to drag things out, when it attempted to effectively frustrate uh, the exercise of the opposition's parliamentary majority, 
the court stepped in and effectively restored that uh, parliament and allowed it to continue with the process of dismissing the government. So at that level, uh, this is something which is new uh, in that uh, we typically have not had prime ministers ousted uh, through a, a parliamentary process, which is of course also upheld by the judicial review that the uh, Supreme Court exercised. So there's both a little bit of both. And in that sort of, let's start with the continuity, right? Because obviously we saw, in my view at least, and if you disagree, I would love your thoughts on this as well. This continuity sort of uh, emerged even in the pre-2018 setup, right? Where all of a sudden um, people were abandoning the ruling party. Um, the electables after the election were being flown off and joining the PTI. In the Punjab, for example, where the PMLN had the highest number of seats, they were unable to form the government because of the shenanigans that, that happened there. Um, so from your point of view, is, you know, some people at least uh, that I've been talking to say the continuity is there, but the second shift that you talked about that statutory, it, it was a constitutional process. That's a major shift in terms of where we go from here on out. How do you see what comes next, right? Because I'm trying to figure out whether this government, the new government that has again come into power through some of the things that have always happened behind the scenes, um, perhaps loses that same support and we go back to square one um, and, and would love your thoughts on how you see this playing out and let's say the next six to eight months, which is when elections occur. I think that uh, basically a three party system where you have three reasonably large and competitive parties is inherently more prone to establishing very frail parliamentary majorities. Uh, and the frailer a parliamentary majority is, the more vulnerable it is to being uh, eroded by the switchover of either one of the alliance partners or uh, by the defection of some of the uh, members of the original party itself. So I think fundamentally uh, that uh, shift away from a system where either let's say the PMLN or the People's Party could be reasonably confident that they will be a leading coalition partner or maybe even form the government outright. Uh, we're now in a situation where even if let's say the PTI is ousted and even if it does not win in the next elections, it should still get enough seats in order to seriously damage uh, the ability of the PMLN to form a, a simple majority outright. So that kind of competition uh, makes for coalition politics, it makes for a high level of unst uh, un instability and it uh, makes basically strategically located minorities extremely powerful uh, because a few votes here or there can uh, change the fortunes of a government. And that of course in turn means that whatever government comes into existence, whether it is the PTI or whether it is the PMLN, uh, it will have to rely upon uh, a coalition of uh, electables and allies and independents who sort of bandwagon with it and uh, can also get off the wagon if they decide that it is not in the interest to continue or if they feel that they are under some kind of uh, pressure, uh, clandestine or otherwise, uh, to reconsider their political loyalty. So from that perspective, and I have a question in, in the sense about Imran Khan's own strategy right now, right? He's obviously been very vocal over the last few weeks and in his protests as well that those opposed to him are the Jafars, they are traitors to the country. Um, and then sort of there's this increasing belief that the popularity or the sympathy for Imran Khan after what transpired over the last few days means that they feel they're strong in a stronger position to come back with higher numbers in the next elections or thereafter, and therefore they can burn those bridges. Again, from a historical perspective, my reading of history has been that that can be a pretty dangerous and, and, and a ploy that doesn't yield optimal outcomes if your goal ultimately is to come back to power. How do you see that strategy that the PTI has embarked upon at this point in terms of this idea that it's a three-party system, there will always be the need for coalitions, 
And the logical view, in my opinion, would be if you're going to burn all those bridges, then it becomes that much harder for you as a politician to engage in the coalition politics that perhaps are necessary to maintain on power. How do you see the, the strategy being used by deployed by the PTI compared to what is likely the makeup of this coalition set up in parliament? Uh, I think that uh, at the moment, at least, uh, so soon after the fall of its government, uh, there are a lot of understandably raw feelings in the PTI leadership and amongst their supporters. Uh, it's only to be expected that they will vocalize those emotions and that they will try to show that, uh, in fact, uh, we have not been dismissed because we, in any real sense, lost our uh, democratic right of uh, being the representatives, uh, but that, in fact, uh, it was the result of an intrigue. It was the result of, you know, all the old politicians, the looters and plunderers, as they put it, coming together and apparently uh, pushing us out. But at the same time, I think what the PTI is doing is that it is for the first time, perhaps since the downfall of the Musharraf government or the Musharraf regime, it is actually imposing considerable uh, political and social costs on the military itself. And it is doing so in a remarkably direct manner by challenging uh, the uh, military in the sense that it is presenting itself as being the real uh, guardian of Pakistan's sovereignty. And it is presenting its ouster as the result of uh, some kind of an intrigue between the Americans and the opposition. And you know how could that take place without, of course, the establishment being in on it at some stage or the other. So that uh, imposition of costs is, I think, putting the military in a very, very uncomfortable situation. And that is not something which uh, they have been used to over the last 10 years or so. Uh, they've not really been called out like this uh, by a major popular political party. Uh, certainly, if you look at the uh, tweets and the social media messaging and uh, the kind of rhetoric that is coming out directly from PTI leaders and you know, maybe even more from their supporters, uh, this is something which is being interpreted as you know, a criticism on the military itself, a criticism on the institutions themselves. So it's a very, uh, I think, strange thing for the military as well uh, to find itself so publicly in the crosshairs. And uh, I don't think that uh, they expected uh, this kind of a prolonged public spat to result uh, as a result of Imran's ouster. They probably miscalculated uh, his determination or his sheer uh, willingness to go to the brink with them, uh, whether it was while he was in the government during the dying days of it or soon after his ouster. And uh, literally, they've had no break in a sense. So uh, within 24 hours of the ouster, uh, he's been uh, going against them publicly. His uh, people have been going against them very publicly. And of course, people are pointing out the irony, you know, of the uh, same page people suddenly discovering the merits of uh, civilian supremacy and uh, Iran Khan's old statements about Bajwa and the military and other such things are being uh, counter circulated to show that, you know, look here, uh, everything was fine till a few months ago. And now all of a sudden, uh, this has happened. But uh, I uh, really do feel that uh, Imran has tapped into a uh, genuine disaffection uh, in a large segment of Pakistan's population, which is very vocal, uh, which is very assertive in some ways, and which is, on the one hand, also a part beneficiary of the status quo. Uh, if you look at the military middle class or the bureaucratic middle class, uh, but is also uh, keenly disappointed in Pakistan's overall trajectory. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, now the military sort of 
is being assigned the value of being behind the current government uh, that has replaced the PTI. And uh, the PTI, I think, on social media and on other such platforms is uh, really hammering away. So, I mean, you know, you can look at, you know, when the ISPR uh, chief was giving his press conference, uh, during that press conference, Imran Khan was tweeting away and launching one broadside after another. And you can compare the number of tweets and retweets that uh, Imran Khan got for his uh, messages and the total amount of publicity that the ISPR was getting. So I think uh, they are very much on the back foot in terms of how exactly to uh, deal with him. And they did not expect perhaps this level of uh, resistance uh, after the fact. Yeah, I think Imran Khan at some level, right, continues this long tradition of prime ministers who somehow in three years or so of being in office realize that they have power and that the, then they get kicked out and realize that the military perhaps is part of the problem. And one way or the other, Nawashi called Bajwa out a little bit here and there a couple of years ago. Khan is doing, as you said, without the break, almost immediately. And that brings me to a question I've been sort of toying it with in my head is, you know, the, the, the sentiment that he's tapped into, the vocalization of this sentiment, particularly on social media, um, you know, is, is crazy in, in what we've seen at all. It's historic. Right. Um, but then that begs the question that the empire, as I refer to it, always strikes back um, and, and they might be on the back foot. Um, and maybe it may be a, a period of time where perhaps it may not be able to come back at uh, this criticism in a way that perhaps we expect or have seen historically. But what's your view in that sense that, you know, the military obviously seems to be in its own way pushing back, perhaps not as effectively. They picked up some of their act as social media activists, etc. But do you sense that at some level there will be, you know, within a couple of weeks after these jalsas are over and if this still continues that perhaps the military may decide enough is enough and, and do what it usually historically has always done? And if so, uh, where do things go from there? Because it's a very different Pakistan than used to exist in the 90s or the period before that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, in this respect, uh, the military's options will be somewhat constrained uh, by the nature of the demographic that is supporting uh, Imran Khan. Uh, that is uh, in major cities, uh, that is in upscale locations like DHAs themselves. Uh, so the ability of the military to do much about people of that uh, nature is limited because they are in a way drawn from the same pool. But at the same time, uh, I think that the military in structural terms remains in a very, very strong position. And if there is any weakness, that weakness might actually end uh, with uh, Bajwa's tenure and with the assumption uh, of the chief of army staff uh, slot by another army chief in a few months' time. So uh, I don't think that the military can at all be written off. I think that uh, the residual strength of the military is enormous. Uh, it is something which has very much uh, proven time and again its ability to stay uh, and its ability to return, although it does periodically take a few steps back uh, when the heat gets too much. Uh, but uh, in this case, I am not entirely uh, sure that we are actually looking at any kind of permanent uh, military retreat from interference in the political process. Uh, at the most, it might be a rhetorical uh, you know, taking a few steps back, but uh, with a fragile uh, three-party system, uh, the ability to deliver uh, key constituencies into the lap of one party or another and, you know, swing things uh, for a parliamentary majority in one way or the other is always going to be very, very uh, considerable. So I think that, you know, we should not uh, perhaps read too much into the present uh, spat. Uh, if this continues for another several months into the elections, if this kind of strident rhetoric uh, 
becomes basically the bread and butter of the PTI going into the next elections, uh, then you may well see uh, a far more direct response. But uh, for now, it seems as if that you basically have an exchange of these messages and an exchange of these uh, statements uh, coming out. So one of the things that um, obviously has been a subject of much debate, you've done research on this, as well as the role of the superior judiciary in all of this, right? People have been asking the question, well, how come the Supreme Court and the Islamabad High Court opened their doors in, in around midnight, right? And then sort of signaled to parliament that if the speaker um, does not obey its orders, then they will be held in contempt. And there were clear indications on the media that they would arrest them, et cetera. Um, and people say, well, look, here's another evidence of this conspiracy. Everyone's in on it, including the judiciary and the establishment, right? Um, but you've done research um, that shows that the judiciary itself has emerged as, a, as an important sort of center of power. Um, and has shifted the center of gravity to an extent institutionally within Pakistan's political system. Um, how have you sort of analyzed and assessed the role the superior judiciary has played throughout this crisis, particularly that late night opening of the courts? Well, I think uh, that when the Supreme Court took notice of what had happened in the assembly and uh, started to hold uh, hearings, for the Supreme Court to do this meant that it was of a mind to actually intervene and take a decision on this particular issue. Uh, for the Supreme Court to have allowed the PTI government to uh, get away with what was frankly an illegal dissolution of the assembly uh, would have greatly diminished the standing of the judiciary. Uh, it would have made it appear as if that the judiciary is looking for a revival of a kind of doctrine of necessity. And I remember that there were a lot of people who were very fearful that the basically the five judges that have been entrusted with this task, uh, they tend to lean towards the PTI, they tend to you know, lean against the opposition, uh, they are uh, not uh, particularly known for aggressive interventionism in the past. But when, uh, the, when it came to the decision, they allowed the government a full opportunity to explain its position. Uh, I remember a lot of people were very annoyed by the fact that you know, the uh, judiciary was taking a few days to make up its mind. Uh, there were people who basically wanted the judges to immediately make a decision one way or the other. Uh, but that deliberative process continued. And for several days, uh, the attention of the entire country was, you know, fixed on courtroom number one, as it, you know, it used to be once upon a time during the time of uh, Justice Chaudhary Iftikhar or uh, even under uh, Justice Saqib Nisar. And uh, the verdict that was delivered was consistent with the constitution and it did not actually uh, dismiss the PTI government. It did not actually do anything. It simply allowed the process that the opposition had initiated to reach a logical end. And in that sense, I think that out of the uh, main actors in this uh, crisis, the only one that has perhaps emerged with its reputation enhanced is the judiciary. The PTI government, as well as the opposition politicians, uh, they are seen as you know, polarizing, self-seeking, insecure. Uh, to a large segment of the population, it is becoming obvious that Imran Khan is actually willing to risk the constitutional stability of the country uh, if it means uh, him staying on in power. As far as the opposition is concerned, they have not exactly done themselves any great credit uh, in terms of the kind of rhetoric they espoused during the buildup to this vote of no confidence. Then uh, they are uh, you know, strange bedfellows at another level. And what unifies them, as the PTI supporters argue, is essentially a desire to prevent Imran Khan from coming back to power for a second term, 
and to disrupt the electoral reforms like the EVMs and the overseas Pakistanis being able to vote in the elections in order to basically uh, rig the next election so that they can win. And I think in that, you already have the beginning of the PTI resistance if it uh, fails to win the next elections. That you, know, you can already see that it will argue that you know, obviously the elections are rigged and that was the whole point of the uh, coup against us. It was the whole point of the regime change as they put it against us. But in all of this, uh, I think the judiciary has gained uh, tremendously in terms of its uh, standing. Uh, it has shown uh, the ability to not only stand up to the civilian executive, which it has done before many, many times, uh, but it also appears to have, uh, through very firm uh, measures, signaled to the uh, civilian government that uh, there will be serious consequences if they persist in uh, trying to subvert the constitutional uh, process. So at that level, uh, I would say that uh, judicial intervention in this case has uh, worked. And of course, uh, the thing is that, you know, in terms of at least my research or my findings, uh, I have felt now for at least, you know, 10 years or so, if not a bit longer, is that in Pakistan, the civilian executive is so out of control, so arbitrary in how it behaves, that without that uh, sort of Democles hanging over its head in the form of a suomoto and the aggressive exercise of original jurisdiction, uh, civilian governments will get up to all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, we have seen that in terms of the PTI as well, uh, that you know, the kind of desperation and the kind of uh, brinksmanship that we saw in its uh, final few weeks, uh, it really actually brought the country to the verge of a constitutional breakdown. And the fact that we did not cross that breakdown, the credit for that uh, rightly belongs primarily uh, to the judiciary. So the judiciary has restored parliament and parliament has dismissed the prime minister. So the judiciary in a way is the ultimate constitutional cause of the prime minister's dismissal, while the parliament itself is merely the instrumental cause or the efficient cause of that dismissal. So I think the judiciary uh, has uh, done well and the kind of uh, founding that the military is taking in terms of its public standing, in terms of the kinds of messages and the kinds of rhetoric that is now being directed against it, you don't see that kind of rhetoric being directed against the Supreme Court. Uh, you don't really see that. I mean, of course, there might be a few statements here and there, uh, but the target uh, of the PTI and its narrative is essentially that uh, we have been overthrown as a result of a national security crisis, a foreign-backed regime change. And whose job is it to defend Pakistan's national security? Obviously, it's not the job of the judiciary to defend Pakistan's national security. It is the job of the military and the intelligence apparatus under the control of the military. So they are indirectly and in some ways even directly calling the military out for what they perceive to be or what they want people to believe is a fundamental failure of the military in terms of fulfilling its basic institutional mandate. So I think that also helps the judiciary in a way because it takes the military down a peg. So you can think of it in a sort of zero sum game manner that uh, the civilian politicians and bureaucrats remain a very distant third and fourth, but the judiciary has gotten you know, a fresh amount of wind in its sails, and it is looking a lot better, a lot more disciplined, a lot more reasonable, a lot more responsible uh, than any other institution in the country. And I think it's interesting, at least from my perspective, given the role chief justices can and have played in, in the recent past in terms of determining the direction of the courts itself, that 
upcoming Justice Faizisa um, will be a Supreme Court Chief Justice at some point in the future. And that, again, will be an interesting thing from an institutional point of view to watch, at least at a personal level for me, because um, clearly he's been targeted and he's been outspoken as a justice against some of the excesses of the military, but also the civilians themselves. Um, and so his sort of rise in the Supreme Court itself will make for an interesting case study as well about where the court goes next. But I agree with you that they've raised their stature. And I don't know if you disagree with this or not, but my view has been that the sort of, while the military has been the dominant institution, perhaps on a net basis, it's been the biggest loser in all of this in the sense that they obviously burned some level of bridges with Nawaz Sharif over the last few years and the central Punjab sort of, we saw some echoes of that over the last few years. And now with the PTI, it's even out there, even more in the open. And so collectively, if you sort of were to give points to every party, um, they perhaps lose the most and they may have a bigger lead. So they're still number one, but you know, they're the biggest net losers in, in this whole situation as well. The, the, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think that uh, the cost for the military in this particular instance uh, has been uh, far greater than in previous instances. And uh, the determination of the PTI to hammer away at their central message is also uh, something which is unnerving uh, for the military leadership. And you can see that it was very visible in the ISPR chief's uh, press conference. So the question I have, um, again, that is from a historical perspective, we've seen plenty of experiments that the military has conducted blow up in its face, right? The most visible one that perhaps most Pakistanis forget about is 1971. And I often remind people, at least from my perspective, that we've seen a revolution in Pakistan, except we just don't remember it as one because a part of our country broke away and is now known as Bangladesh. It was the most populous part of the country, um, right? And it was a revolution in many ways against what was going on at that time. But those experiments that have been conducted time and time again, at least from my point of view, have not led to introspection, analysis, course correction, uh, from within the most dominant institution in Pakistan's political setup. Um, do you think that this ongoing saga will lead to um, some level of course correction? Or do you see again, uh, as you earlier mentioned, that this is perhaps more of a tactical retreat and once Bajwa is gone, we may slowly come back to the status quo in terms of its approach as an institution? Yeah, I think that, uh, let's say, if you mention the 1971 uh, crisis, which saw the secession of East Pakistan, uh, the military was back in power just six years after that, and for an 11-year period. So I think that in the Pakistani context, the ability of the military to recover, even from catastrophic setbacks that you know setbacks that you think would basically put a lid on uh, this kind of intervention or experimentation for all times to come uh, that uh, does not appear to last very long and i think the reason why it doesn't last very long is that unfortunately our political actors when they do get a window of opportunity to consolidate civilian power they typically don't do a very good job at it. And that rapidly leads to the military regaining whatever prestige or whatever standing it lost and reasserting itself as the uh, arbiter of the political process. So in that context, uh, what we see again happening now is that a sizable portion of the civilian political leadership represented by the PTI seems to basically be saying uh, to now be uh, saying that the only outcome that is acceptable to us is if we win. And if we don't win, it means that it is everything from a constitutional coup to a foreign conspiracy uh, to uh, the uh, 
role of uh, money in terms of buying people off and corruption and that sort of stuff. So the problem is for any electoral system, for any electoral democracy to stabilize, the fundamental requirement is that the party that loses the election or that loses the vote of confidence accepts the legitimacy of the outcome. And unfortunately, what we have seen in Pakistan since the earliest provincial level elections were held in the 1950s is that in Pakistan, the losing party claims that it has been rigged against. It claims that uh, it will not accept the legitimate outcome of the election, that it will you know, boycott the assemblies, it will refuse to go. Uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto did that in the context of the 1970-71 electoral process. So you have the situation where the losing party is simply not willing to accept that it has lost, or at least one of the major losing parties is simply not willing to accept that it has lost. And that creates the recipe for continuous constitutional crisis what it means is then that the government that does emerge from this electoral process is constantly struggling to establish its legitimacy. It is under constant uh, assault. Uh, now, of course, on the media and social media and everything else uh, for its uh, perceived uh, malfeasance in the electoral process. So our politicians effectively destroy each other's legitimacy and they fail to consolidate, they fail to actually establish a credible electoral process in which uh, the losing party will then say that, all right, fine, we've lost fair and square, uh, and we will wait for the next election. And while we wait for the next election, we will, of course, use every you know, legal trick in the book to uh, shorten the duration of the government by bringing it down in the assemblies which is their right as an opposition to do so in a parliamentary system. Uh, but if we fail to do that, you know, so be it. We'll just have to ride out the five years. So that uh, maturity, unfortunately, we have failed to develop in uh, Pakistan. And Imran Khan in particular is, I think, taking us further away from that uh, maturity that is required for a constitutional democratic system to stabilize. In a way, the People's Party and the PMLN, after doing a lot of terrible things to each other during the 1990s, did seem to come to this conclusion that, okay, fine, uh, we are not going to engage in the kind of destabilization of each other's governments that we did during that decade. So, which Imran Khan uh, calls or refers to as Mukmuka at that time when it began. Exactly, which he calls it, this is basically a rotten arrangement. This is a, a basically fixing of the democratic process, a subversion of it. So the PTI is clearly not buying into uh, that part of the narrative and they are uh, not going to either if they lose. So the problem that Pakistan now has is this, even if it does not win the next elections, it is reasonable to uh, presume that the PTI will get at least as many votes as it did in 2013, which means that 70 to 80 lakh Pakistani, seven to eight million Pakistani voters will vote for the PTI. That is a pretty sizable chunk. And those voters would be heavily concentrated in the urban areas. Uh, they would be heavily represented on social media. They would be upwardly mobile, educated, etc. So that refusal of the PTI to accept the legitimacy of the outcome if it loses is going to have profound uh, implications for any government that comes to power. Uh, after the next election cycle. So that's, a, that's, that's a great segue to a question that I had uh, in my mind and, and wanted to discuss with you as well was, um, you know, the median age 
of this country is about 24 years old, 23, 24. Let's assume it's 25, under 25, which basically means that the median sort of majority of the population was born on the eve of the Musharraf coup almost, right? Um, and, and given what we're taught in Pakistan studies, a lot of Pakistanis don't really have a good sense of their own history and historical understanding of their politics. Um, so this, this moment in time is perhaps a great political awakening, or one could call it that, and then an experience of them understanding and seeing for the first time in their lives um, how power actually uh, demonstrates itself in Pakistan's politics. Um, are you optimistic that perhaps this moment um, in time will lead to a sizable majority of the population recognizing the issues that plague the political structures of Pakistan? Or do you think that this is going to not yield to any major awakening that then is perhaps needed for reforms, right? Because there are plenty of reforms needed on the economic side of which I talk a lot about. But even on the political side, like you said, parliament has to figure a way to sort of function and come to an arrangement within itself. Um, is, is this a great political awakening in the country where perhaps things improve from here on out? Well, uh, it is an awakening, if we wish to call it that. And uh, it is an awakening that has been about 10 years in the making. Uh, but it is not necessarily an awakening uh, that is compatible with the survival of any kind of constitutional government in the country. So yes, uh, the PTI base is charged and they are awake. But uh, the problem is that if you look at their discourse, it is essentially the discourse of uh, people who are following a charismatic authoritarian figure who is promising them salvation, who is a kind of messianic figure for them, and uh, who uh, they believe to be an inherently benevolent and an inherently uh, pure uh, creature, as opposed to everybody else who is malevolent and impure by comparison and who therefore deserves to rule, not by virtue of whether he can actually command a majority of the votes in, a, in an electoral contest, by simply by virtue of the fact that he is the one who is uh, suitable to rule Pakistan. So it is an awakening, but it is more of a uh, mass psychology or fascism type of awakening. Uh, it isn't a kind of awakening which uh, would make anyone uh, who, let's say, wishes for Pakistan to have a normal constitutional parliamentary democracy uh, would be uh, at ease with. And uh, what we are seeing happening now is, of course, that that rhetoric is being taken to extreme uh, fever pitch. Uh, the uh, PTI ministers are now even uh, making dark allusions to use of blasphemy against their opponents. Uh, which is a horrific instrument to use in the context of Pakistani politics. Shiri uh, Mazari tweeted about this today, is referring to the opponents as uh, people who did not believe in the finality of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Yes, and uh, while she was human rights minister, she was extremely concerned with the human rights of everybody living outside of Pakistan, uh, not so much as what was happening within the country by her own admission. For example, the bill on enforced disappearances disappeared. Uh, uh, and how could a black Vigo, a black Vigo came and took the bill away from her ministry? Exactly. And presumably they only had one copy of it, so that was the end of it. So the, I, I'm afraid that what we are seeing here is yes, an awakening. But this is not the kind of awakening that we saw towards the end of the Musharraf period, where you had an awakening in favor of rule of law, in favor of an independent judiciary, in favor of a restoration of democracy. Uh, this is not an awakening like that which we saw in the late 1960s, which was in favor of uh, socialism and social democracy and redistribution of wealth and that sort of stuff. This is basically a uh, conservative, reactionary kind of uh, awakening. And what we are now basically seeing is uh, how uh, so many uh, young people 
uh, and indeed so many old people as well. I mean, you know, the WhatsApp uncles are going crazy these days with forwards and other stuff, uh, are genuinely convinced uh, that uh, this is a great conspiracy against the sovereignty of Pakistan and Imran Khan is the only person uh, who uh, can actually stand against uh, this uh, threat to Pakistan's existence as an independent country. So that kind of uh, reasoning or that kind of thinking is basically not compatible with any kind of normal give and take style parliamentary process. So it is an anti-democratic and anti-liberal and anti-constitutional awakening. And where that leads is unfortunately best case scenario, uh, chronic instability. If the PTI succeeds in winning at some stage in the future, then uh, we may well see uh, a far uh, harsher version of the PTI government than we could perhaps ever have imagined in the first instance. So uh, I don't think at all uh, that uh, this awakening is uh, something that we should be uh, all that uh, proud of. Then, and that brings me to my final question. You obviously answered it in a in a way in terms of the best case scenario, chronic instability, worst case scenario, a PTI that is more authoritarian, more cultish, perhaps fascist in its orientation if it gets enough votes in parliament. Um, but but from your perspective, from where history you mentioned right after 1971, it took six years for the military to come back to power for an 11 year period. Um, are we is there a realistic scenario where perhaps the instability from the best case scenario um leads to some level of uh you know uh, not some level another military coup or even on the other side where perhaps we're seeing as you mentioned the core base of the PTI support is coming from the military middle class and the bureaucratic middle class is there even a risk of institutional fracture within the military on the other end where perhaps the cultish believers within the military itself lead to some level of chaos in the institution. Like what, what does the military do in either scenario? I think uh, for the military, uh, as well as for the parliamentary opposition that is now in the government, uh, there are very few good options in the short term. Uh, the military used the PTI it uh, aligned itself with the PTI. It empowered the PTI to go down the kind of aggressive rhetorical path that the PTI took. Uh, and then when it tried to basically switch it off, it turned out that, well, yes, it can still dispose of the PTI as a government, uh, but it can't necessarily dispose of the PTI as a political force or as a, a social force. So I'm afraid that from the military's perspective, uh, while at one level, this instability basically will enhance the role of the military, uh, the military would not actually then have any good options in terms of who exactly does it align with in order to manipulate or in order to manage the political process in a way that is conducive to its continued uh, dominance. At the same time, of course, the civilian actors are likely to do such a good job of knocking each other out that there is very little chance that the civilian leaders will actually strengthen civilian bureaucratic and political institutions and start to build that civilian capacity. They'll be too busy basically trying to survive in office uh, because of this uh, three-way fracture uh, to take on any serious scheme of reform or any serious scheme of self-improvement. So we are looking at a kind of uh, institutional equilibrium, which is very fragile, which is in a way prone to stagnation, which is prone to crisis, which is uh, prone to uh, repeated uh, attacks on the legitimacy of the constitutional process, maybe now even the armed forces and other such things. So we are looking at uh, essentially an age of discord ahead of us. 
And the PTI will be one of the prime drivers of that discord. Managing that discord is something which I think the military will find extremely difficult uh, because uh, it's hard to you know, put all those genies back in the bottle. Yeah, I think I, I wish we were a bit more optimistic, but I have to agree with your pessimistic take on the situation as well. I don't think these genies are going back into the bottle. And if we've seen globally how conspiracy theories evolve, mutate, metastasize, um, this is only just the beginning. Um, having lived through the Trump years myself, I can attest to the fact that once a conspiracy theory takes takes a grip, um, on either side, we saw this on the Democratic side with the Russia hoax, for example, four years of, you know, Trump being the all sorts of theories about Trump's links to Russia, um, but more so on the Republican side, uh, where the party has gone down a fascist path itself, um, culminating with January 6th, and there's still more to come. And I think Pakistan's in that similar uh, place. And, and I agree with you also on the political side with stagnation. And just today, we've already seen where the Sharif government um, has come in with a proposal by Ogra to raise petroleum prices and start beginning the process of undoing what the disastrous policy of the Imran Khan government to cut prices and freeze them. But they can't because there's anger on the street and the Pakistani citizen has been pummeled by 40% inflation over three and a half years to now expect uh, them to bear the burden of 15 plus percent inflation at a time when politics is uh, just, uh, you know, at, at such volatile, at such a volatile place, um, it's just not possible, right? And I, we can see that that decision to reject Ogra summary is an indication of the challenge they also recognize that they face in terms of mounting problems on the street itself. So um, we're in for a rough ride. I agree with you. Um, I agree that the judiciary um, has come out uh, of this on top. But I think the net loser is Pakistan and its ordinary citizens. Um, and this awakening that we're seeing, I think, is, is also dangerous. And we'll see where it goes. But um, it will get a whole lot worse. And I think you'll agree with that. It'll get a whole lot worse uh, before it gets any better. I think uh, because you mentioned uh, what happened in the United States, I think what uh, Trump demonstrated and the Republicans are now demonstrating is that even in a very old, very stable republic, constitutional republic, if even one important component of that republic refuses to abide by the norms of a constitutional government, it is incredibly difficult for any kind of external machinery to compel that individual to then behave in that way that is appropriate. It can be done, but it is very difficult. And even if it is done, like we see with Trump, or like we now see with Imran Khan, or perhaps other such leaders, they then claim that, well, you know, we're actually the victim of a massive conspiracy. And uh, tens of millions of people buy into that. So you have a situation where it's not just a leader or a party that is now rejecting the fundamental basis for a constitutional order. You have tens of millions of people who are buying into that narrative and saying that, you know, this uh, system is rigged. It's uh, all about the elites. Uh, the common man will never get a fair chance. And we need someone you know, not to simply have a turn of the wheel, but we need somebody to break the wheel. And that person is going to be, you know, Donald Trump or Imran Khan or Narendra Modi or whoever else, you know, sort of falls into uh, that category. But I think there is also a more profound problem. Over the last 40 years, there has actually ceased to be a meaningful debate about what type of socioeconomic measures a society or a government ought to take. And in the Pakistani context, for the last 40 years, as has been the case with many other countries, uh, we've been following a very, very uh, interesting regimen of structural adjustment and liberalization and 
following the diktats of the IMF and the policies of the World Bank and so on and so forth. And we see that India has also been doing something very similar since 1990. Uh, now the problem here is that if politics is no longer about competing visions for how to organize a society or an economy, it will simply become a question of which leader do you support and which identity do you support. So the depoliticization of economics has in effect created a situation where politics has essentially become an exercise in building a fan or a cult following and then having people blindly follow it. So what difference does it make to the average Indian farmer who's committing suicide if Vajpayee is pursuing the same policies and Manmohan Singh is pursuing the same policies and when Manmohan Singh is replaced by somebody else, he is also pursuing the same policies. Of course, there might be differences in terms of which are the favorite pet projects of a leader. So uh, Imran Khan was particularly keen on the Langar Khanas. Uh, I think Shabazz Sharif has a bee in his bonnet about the Sasti Roti scheme. Uh, you know, uh, one would be more interested perhaps in uh, building more infrastructure. The other might be more interested in cash transfers. Or but, real estate yeah, projects through real estate amnesties. Yes, but basically they are all operating within the same basic framework. Uh, none of them actually have an alternative socioeconomic vision to offer people. The PMLN might argue that our economic team is technocratically more competent and they do a better job of you know, controlling the currency and inflation and having a little bit higher growth rate. People's Party might say that, okay, you know, within the constraints of the programs that we go into, we do, after all, raise the wages of government employees and give more cash transfers. And uh, PTI might say that, oh, well, you know, we are, you know, focused on a clean government and this and that, Riyasat and Medina, all of that. But the fundamental problem is that there is actually no substantive philosophical or intellectual difference in their socioeconomic vision. It is a difference in projects, not really a difference in uh, policy or program or anything intellectually uh, substantive. So I think that hollowing out of politics, that basically once politics ceases to be a debate about the best way to improve people's lives, it turns into a debate about the best way to manipulate people in order to sustain a status quo for a tiny elite that is extracting resources from everybody, regardless of whether the Democrats or the Republicans or the PMLN or the PTI or the People's Party are rotating into and out of power. And that then breeds this kind of disillusionment with the system as a whole, that you know the system is rigged, the system is broken. And then, of course, you can have people like, you know, Imran, etc., that can tap into that and, in a sense, provide a false consciousness, a false, you know, mantra of change that desperate people or people who simply want to see their country do better buy into without perhaps realizing that actually the underlying policies that he's offering are basically the same policies. Uh, his rhetoric and his personal charisma, that's a bit different. So if you follow him blindly, uh, he's pretty much going to do the same thing that the other guys have done. No, I, I but, fully agree. And I think that that's the, uh, you, you kind of, I think are snooping into my phone or my mind because I was actually having this conversation with a friend about what would be, if at all, the difference um, between uh, the People's Party's shadow finance minister and the PMLN's finance minister and the PTI's finance minister if we had a debate. And the answer we came up with was exactly what you said, that they might differ on, I can administer better, I'll procure LNG on time, um, I will do less corruption and save 10% on road projects, etc. Um, but philosophically, structurally, ideologically speaking, the economic view would be the same. And I think you sort of, I fully agree with you. And that's the core of the problem in the sense that it's a kleptocratic setup 
the status quo benefits from that setup and the status quo is represented in parliament, in the provincial assemblies and the bureaucratic setup, which then means that there is no incentive to reform, but that lack of incentive then breeds political volatility, which then leads to the stagnation you and I have been talking about and the crisis that perhaps we've seen and are continuing to see in the country as a whole. Yes, and uh, the problem there again is that when you are facing this kind of broad-based intellectual abdication or bankruptcy, then you enter the realm where you know, the culture warriors can thrive, where you can essentially hack people rather than solving their problems. And I think that is what the PTI has done far more successfully than any of the other major political parties. And uh, its ability, therefore, to have a more effective discourse in terms of culture and identity and what Pakistan means and you know who is corrupt and who is not corrupt, a sort of an ability to frame the narrative that everybody else has to react to, that is definitely greater. So regardless of how many seats it, it uh, gets, uh, the PTI is in many ways uh, dominating Pakistan's public discourse and dominating it in a way which basically reduces our problems and solutions to those problems to basically a, a very, uh, I would say, unsustainable concept that will all you need is clean, honest leadership and everything else will fall in line. And, and I think Iran is the only one who can provide that clean, honest uh, leadership. You know, just look at the other people that are uh, coming. Uh, they are all you know, having a very tainted past, they are all, you know, crooks, etc. And their then uh, propaganda machine is able to play those things up far more effectively than everybody else. I don't know if you've gotten this from some of your Insafian friends, I have um, consistently over the last two weeks is, oh, you don't like Imran Khan, you must like Shabash Sharif or Asif Ali Zardari. And I'm like, this is not a binary choice. There is a big spectrum here where not liking Imran Khan and what he stands for does not mean that you automatically support Shabash Sharif or Nawaz Sharif and what the PMLN stands for or what the People's Party stands for or what anybody else stands for. The issue is structural, but I think our rhetoric has again devolved into something so cynical at a, at a cultish level is that the opposition to one man means you by default like the other and it's very hard and gotten even harder in the last two weeks to argue with people and explain to them that the problem is different and diagnosing the problems with the PTI does not mean one is ignorant of the problems with the others, but it's just getting harder to make that conversation happen at this point. And that uh, breakdown in communications uh, is something which helps a party like the PTI uh, because it helps it charge its base. You know, it sort of enables it to sell this idea that, well, you know, we are engaged in a great struggle against evil, against the forces of imperialism, against, you know, Mir Jafar and other people of that ilk. And uh, <clears throat> you have to help us. And if you don't help us, that means that you are obviously with them. So I think, you know, that binary, which is something which uh, politicians of uh, such a nature are good at creating and selling, uh, is something that we are seeing the PTI now marketing very, very aggressively. And I think, uh, you know, what, of course, the strategy on their part will be is, you know, anybody's guess. It could well be that after imposing significant costs in terms of the rhetoric on the military, they then come to an understanding with it that, you know, look here, uh, we are happy to partner with you again to form the government, but we are not completely your stooges. Uh, we have autonomy. We, you know, have our own ability to uh, inflict pain on you if, you know, you don't do things we like either. Uh, or it just simply continues doubling down on this rhetoric in the hope that this rhetoric is able to 
turn the next election into a debate about Pakistan's sovereignty and the you know, alleged conspiracy. Uh, you know, one of uh, the people who I was interacting with basically asked me that, well, you know, can you prove that there wasn't a conspiracy? And I think that's, I think, a perfect encapsulation of the hardcore PTI supporter that, you know, how do you or I or anybody else prove that there wasn't a conspiracy? Basically, the onus for proving something lies with those who make the claim, not with those who say that, well, you know, I don't think this happened this way. But uh, that is something which, again, uh, we will have to uh, deal with. And the current government uh, is in a very difficult situation. Uh, they are going to face at least the passage of one very, very tough budget. And if they choose to extend it all the way to next year, they will be passing two extremely tough budgets potentially, uh, which would do them a lot of damage given the very limited options and the hard trade-offs they will have to make for that process. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we have seen that there is no real impulse to reform or to actually uh, change things in a fundamental manner for the better, whether it's from the PTI side or whether it is from the opposition side. Well, so on that sort of pessimistic note, Dr. Niaz, thank you again uh, for taking out the time for placing this moment in time in historical context, institutionally, structurally, um, the devolution or, or sort of the cynical use of power in Pakistan and personality. Um, and again, one hopes that things improve, but I, like you, um, don't see things getting better anytime soon. And so we're in for a bumpy ride. And to all of you who are tuning in, watching or listening, um, buckle up because it's not going to get any less volatile. The turbulence is only going to grow and we will see where we come out of this, but it's not going to be a pretty ride in the meantime. So again, Dr. Niaz, thank you once again for joining Pakistanomy for a third time. I'll invite you once more in the next few months to see where we go towards election. Um, but in the meantime, we'll be in touch and, and stay safe. Thank you so much.